This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For your free trial, plus 10% off anything you buy, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code SUPERTRAIN at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Pretty good. Everything's different. Ugh. It's always change. Ah, uh, I don't. Ah, uh, so different right now. Everything's different. Yeah, I. You know, it's like Heraclitus says: you can never dip your foot into the same Skype. <laughs> if you sit on the bridge and watch the Skype go by, it will always be a new Skype. Whoa. And yet it's and yet it's always the same Skype. By the time I see a cloud that looks like something, and I call my daughter over, it doesn't look like that anymore. You know, the, the, it's been so long since I looked up at a cloud and saw a dog or a taco or whatever it is. <laughs> like, I don't, I, ha, I have not had that experience in a long time. And I think it might be that the clouds in Seattle, first of all, the skies are always blue in Seattle. Well, the bluest skies you've ever seen, if memory serves, are in Seattle. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, but Has yeah, Perry, when has there Perry are Como clouds, ever actually been to Seattle? Who? Perry, Perry Como? Como? Yeah. I'm sure Perry Como had been to everywhere. He traveled a lot. You know, those guys, that generation of guys... They're banging showgirls two at a time. What time and what do I wear? But uh, but uh, <laughs> when there are clouds here, they don't look like anything. They just look like a f- they look like film on a soup. <laughs> yeah, this is the time of year, the really depressing time of year in San Francisco, where we just have one contiguous cloud that's called mm-hmm. the weather. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and as far as you know, it goes to Japan. Yeah, right. As far as you know, it just it starts at your house and it goes to Japan. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's super super duper weird. Um. We haven't talked again. It's been a while. We had a little uh, little buy period. You've been traveling mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I got some things on a card here. I wanted to ask you about. I'm okay, just gonna, go. I got four things on a card. I'm just going to toss these out. I know this is yep. a little bit old school. <clears throat> I've got fever. I've got your office. I want to know about your fever, your office, your assistants. If you want to talk about it, mm-hmm. and uh, all the president's men. Okay, in that order. Uh, you know, you can answer the last one first if you want. How, you were you were you were down. So I had a very strange fever. Uh, so you know. <clears throat> a fever that uh, that I could not account for, and now in retrospect, I do feel like I had I do feel like I had an unusual um, illness, hmm. but it coincided with four very hot days. Oh, so I was I was tossing around feverish, and you know, we're just uh, like that thing you'd get in the night where you wake up and you're just your whole bed is just a a, a puddle. Ugh. And you're like, ah, oh, there's no way I could get comfortable, but I don't want to go anywhere else because I'm just going to ruin whatever that is. Yeah. But then, of course, it's also like 85 degrees at night, and uh, and so that that explains some of it. But what <clears throat> what the problem is is that since I stopped eating gluten, uh, all of my normal like like measurements of illness have have to change. Because I used to get, you know, these terrible sinus infections. And since I stopped eating gluten, I have not had a single sinus infection. Wow. And so I'm, I, have the, I have this flu, basically, is probably what it was. Some kind of, you know, some mild bird flu. Mm-hmm. Small bird, a small bird a, flu. Yeah, just like a, like a chickadee know, or a chickadee dee 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 dee. Or, a, yeah, a goldfinch. You know, mm. goldfinches are the Washington State bird. Goldfinch. I'm writing that down. I did not know that goldfinch. Um, but 
but uh, but so I have this sickness, and I'm waiting for it to develop secondary symptoms. I'm waiting to sit with my head all clogged and coughing up big, you know, oysters and just like terrible cold, and it and it never metastasizes into my normal <laughs> cold. And so you know, I, you know from colds. I know a lot of colds, and so I sit there and I'm like, what kind of illness is this this isn't this is this is like in one sense terrible it hurts but in another sense it's not it's not producing any of the the next level like stuff where i'm really uncomfortable right and so so anyway it's gone now and i and i bid it uh, via con dios mm. on to the next person but um but so you've had, like you've had to recalibrate it's a different bar now you you had just gotten used to this long slog of cold you used to get Mm, fair amount of colds, right? I did. I had a lot of colds. Yeah, well, you know, you you drive yourself pretty hard. It's true, but but so normally, what would happen is I would have a I would have a five day fever like that, and then no matter what I did, if I spent five days, if I spent five days curled up in a rag, dosed in antibiotics, <laughs> at the end of five days, no matter what happened, no matter what else. I could have I I could spend 15 days sick and then at the end of that period then I would get a sinus infection and and a lung infection. Oh god. And then I would and then I would have to spend another, you know, 8 to 10 days clearing that out. It just it just happened like clockwork so that so that it almost felt like when I got a cold I should just go run in the rain because no matter what I did I was going to get this next level of of illness. But As you get older, you get used to that rhythm. It's like when you realize you're getting a stress bump and you're like, bring it on. Yeah. You know, you know I don't want to wait. You know, I'm going to pop this. I'm not going to wait six days for yeah. this thing to be malingering on my mouth. Yeah. Cover my face with sores. Cover it. Let's do this thing. Let's do it. Let's go. But so now. <coughs> mm. You sound that, good. You sound, the, you sound very healthy and hale. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a vital young guy in his, in his early middle age. Well, I mean, I sometimes I have to get up five times at night to pee. Yeah, but uh, and I was complaining about that the other day to my mom. I was like, I don't know. I need. I think I need to see a doctor. I haven't been to a doctor in a couple of years. I think I should go. And she's like, Why? What do you need to see a doctor for? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> the kind of encouragement I like. <laughs> and I said, You know what, mom? I'm a middle aged guy. Middle aged guys have to go to the doctor sometimes because they, because things happen to them. And she was like, Ah, doctors are all bad quacks. And I said. Seriously, I you know, I have to get up a lot of times in the night to pee. And she said, Welcome to middle age. <laughs> and I was like, Oh God. The problem this is sucks. once you start talking about health with people, it's sort of like talking about birth or like bad relationships. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got their like horror story mm-hmm. about the person. You know, if he hadn't uh if I hadn't been blowing my boyfriend and found his funny ball, he never would have discovered he had cancer when he was twenty seven. Exactly. <clears throat> and like first of all, I do not want to feel my balls. I've had two friends that totally got testicular cancer in their twenties. Really? Oh yeah. Big time. And did they did they have their balls taken away? <clears throat> well, I think that's part of the process. I, I think know that's, a guy with only one ball. Yeah. Is that I've, is that uh Himmler? I'm no, I've never. I don't know Hitler, for sure. Hitler, Hitler had one ball. He, he and I don't go to like to the locker rooms or anything. I got to sing the song now. Hitler had only one big ball. Himmler had two, but they were small. No, Himmler had something similar. I need to Boy, go back I, to school, I, but I don't even want to think sure about do. that. I need more people like your mom around mm-hmm. me to say, "Listen, leave it. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm, do not mm-hmm. need to go to those people." Well, because you know, I, I I'm also prone to. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't. 
I don't want this show to turn into just some kind of show for the ladies. Mm. But I am prone to moles. I get moles. Oh, you know, people tell you to worry about moles. I got a little mole over here. I got a little mole over there. You watch your moles. You get a chart. You can measure them. See if they have have an uneven surface. Mm -hmm. Moles are a thing we're supposed to worry about. I've been getting moles my whole life. And every uh, new girlfriend I would have would be like, you didn't used to have this mole. And I would say, eh, pretty sure there was something there. Pretty sure it was some kind of mole by the before. And she was like, yeah, but it never looked like this before. Ugh. And I'd be like, uh, I'm pretty sure it looked like something like that before. And she's like, exactly. That's the problem. They're not supposed to change. Ugh. And so they would hustle me off to some doctor. And I'd go sit in his, lo- his office with my shirt off. And he would look at the moles. And he'd go, yeah, that's not a problem. That's not a bad mole. And I would say, why don't you tell me what the bad moles look like so that I can reassure people? <laughs> and he would say, "Ah, eh, well, you know, it's more, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the Supreme Court definition of porn. You know it when you see it. Right. And I'm like, that's no, 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 no. You know it when you see it. So tell me what it is. This isn't some like, this isn't some Masonic uh, ritual that you have to keep concealed from people. He's going to get the business either way. Yeah. Give me the five points that I should be looking for. You need a listicle on uh, seven, seven surprising moles. Yeah. You're not going to believe what metastasize next. And he says, well, you don't, you you know, if they change and I'm like, well, they, they, they all change. This one changed and you didn't have a problem with it. He's like, well, they're uneven. And I'm like, they're all uneven. They're, they're, they're moles. Fucking cop out. They're not fucking pie plates. They're moles. (laughs) Moles change. They they change. They change. He's like, well, if they're, if they're black, you know, these aren't dark enough. And I was like, oh, I see. It's a, it's a pigment scale. And then, you know what I did? Then I just stopped giving a shit about it. And if one of my moles takes over, then that will be my superpower. Yes. I'll be the mole. You'll be the, man, I already a mole, man. But oh. you could, um, here's the thing with doctors. You know, I, I, I feel like you're describing this perfectly because I feel like whatever sentence comes out of a doctor's mouth tacitly always ends with comma, dummy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not a mole, dummy. <laughs> Gotta get your moles checked, dummy. In bed. In bed. <laughs> <laughs> I feel this way about doctors and lawyers. You and, gotta and, call and make an appointment. You gotta find parking. Uh, you go uh, in there. John, there's always forms to fill out. They have well, so many do, forms. You don't half of the time they send you to a different doctor. It's like, you know the story. Tell me the story. And he's like, Well, you should go see this eye, ear, nose, and throat guy. Like, oh, now I gotta make another appointment. It's like going to Best Buy and you think, oh, fuck, I gotta buy a USB cord. And you go there and they're like, hmm, yeah, it could be a USB cord, but you should probably go to the Apple store and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. they gotta send you to the specialist. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole thing. The, and the, and the, this may be Dummy. part of, this may be part of the problem of who we are and our unchecked white privilege. Mm. But I have never heard a thing come out of a doctor or a lawyer's mouth that I didn't feel like, well, I knew that already. And also, I could have figured that out in about, in about 20 minutes if I, didn't, if I hadn't come in here thinking that you were a, a magic sorcerer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what's the answer to this problem? Oh, hmm, it's, it's pretty much what I thought. And we... we uh, you know, we imbue these people with uh, magic powers because of their what? 
three years in school, I have fucking sandwiches in my refrigerator that are older than three years old. Yes. And three years in school, as I get older, and I know you know this already, I do not think that three years in school is that big of a deal. They're also very young, a lot of them. So young. I think of a doctor as being an old-ass man. No privilege involved, but I'm just mm-hmm. saying, when you meet people who are really young, and they still end their sentences with a question, <laughs> it might be I, a myocardial infarction. I had a doctor like that. A doctor who, who, who looked at me like, well, here's the first thing. I had a doctor who looked at me like he was afraid of me. <laughs> Just setting a tone. <coughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by our very good friends over at Squarespace. You know Squarespace. You should. They're the only one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. Guys, they make it all so simple. They have an easy drag-and-drop interface. It has beautiful free templates you can tweak any way you like. All the Squarespace 6 designs are responsive. That means they look great on every device. Squarespace also offers free 24 by 7 support through live email and chat with dedicated teams in New York City, Dublin, and Portland. Now, here's the thing you got to know. John and I have used Squarespace to host Roderick on the Line for three years now. 120 episodes in, they're still just as great to work with as they were on day one. We love working with them, and we really hope you'll give them a try, too. The beauty part is, Squarespace plans start at only $8 per month. $8 a month! That includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which you should totally do. Please remember, tell Squarespace you heard about them from your pals at Roderick on the Line, because listeners of this particular program get a free trial, plus 10% off any package they choose by using the very special offer code SUPERTRAIN at checkout. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Roderick on the Line. We could not do it without him. I do not want my doctor to be afraid of me. And this guy was, he was young, he was small, he had, uh, you know, he had been to, he, I think he went to medical school in Guyana. Like, I didn't, there was nothing about it. Like, nothing he about, went down there for a couple weeks and decided to just get an MD while he was there. <laughs> I'm sure he got, I'm sure his MD is from a reputable school like the University of Pennsylvania. Hmm. But whatever it was, it, 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 they did not teach him in medical school not to, like be visibly afraid of of your patients, and so they're probably I was, smaller there. The people, they, you know what? They are not smaller in Pennsylvania. Oh, but like down in uh, Guyana, if he was seeing oh, the Guyanese, yeah. they're yeah. they're probably you know they're probably s- smaller. They probably have more interesting constellations of moles. They're not used to a bear of a man like you. That's right. They're not used to sub. And, the, and I mean, and honestly, I did have a Bowie knife sticking out of my side when I walked in. So that was. That may, maybe intimidated him at first. You mean like a like a Steve Martin arrow? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I got into a, I got into a little little disagreement, a little fisticuffs with a guy down in front of the Toyota dealership. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen the other guy. I'm not going to pay to have my oil changed here. So, well, it's not like I would get my oil changed at a Toyota dealership. That's another example of something. You know, you'd never take exactly. your car to the dealership. you got to get it changed here, dummy. <laughs> my wife needs the oil changed on our car, and she's, she's supposed to take it to the dealership. Right, because they have the tension boards. Oh, they have the 10W30.5 or whatever. Uh-huh. And it's if very, you don't get uh, it done, then it did. But it, uh, you, you, you know what's your warranty about? if you don't fix the viscosity? Did you know that Volkswagens have a special... "Quote unquote," anti-theft uh, nut on their on their wheels. So you know you've got your you've got your five or six bolts that hold your wheel on. One of them, you know, the five of them are are a normal bolt that you can remove with a with a tire iron. 
And one of them is a special star bolt. And in order to remove it, you have to have a special star uh, adapter. What? Yeah. And so I borrowed a Volkswagen, actually a long time ago. And you get a flat tire on one of these things, nobody can change it. Even AAA can't help you. (sighs) If you don't have the star bolt, which of course is the first thing that every Volkswagen owner loses, right? I mean, how are you going to keep a hold of this little thing? Oh, gosh, and how it must be very, very difficult to find a Starbolt wrench. Well, you can put a normal wrench into the Starbolt. I'm just saying, if you're, if you're somebody who's really into stealing tires off of Volkswagens, that seems oh. like something you would want to get for your kit. Well, ho, 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 ho. Mm-hmm. Here's the deal. They make, this is why it's not so simple. They make multiple different kinds of Starbolts. That's how they get you. Exactly. So you so if you go to the Volkswagen dealership and say I need a Starbolt wrench, they're like what kind of Starbolt you got? And there's no way to know that. Yeah. You have to bring it into the place and show them and then they can go into their enormous bin parts bin of Starbolt. Who the fuck thinks that is a good idea? Is that really that much of a problem that you would introduce that much deliberate inconvenience to the consumer experience? Cuz can I just say John, can I blow your mind? Our car is a Volkswagen. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. a recent Volkswagen, so we probably have a Starbolt. I bet you have a Starbolt. Or maybe they, maybe Starbolts were only a thing that they used from uh, 92 to 99 or something. I sure but, hope so. But Starbolts, uh, uh, I, yeah, I, I, that's exactly the question. I was like, is this, are we the Griswolds, like, off the road somewhere in Baltimore? Like, who steals tires? Who, who anymore steals a wheel off a car? Like, when was the last time you saw a car up on blocks? You used to see them all the time. Well, you know, I'm not a physician, John, but and I don't have the demographic data in front of me, but I would have to say I would rather have the prospect of some diligent person potentially stealing a wheel than knowing that if we're on the side of a freezing road, we can't change our goddamn tires. Can't change our goddamn tires. Oh. Right? You know, that was one of the major plot points. No, I guess not a major plot point, but it was a minor plot point of Smokey and the Bandit, right? Oh, yeah. Those- I, was just, I was just reading about Smokey and the Bandit the other day. Yeah, those kids pull over and they're they're taking the they're taking the wheels off of um, off of the car that got left behind by after what happened something happened and they're stealing the wheels and then Sheriff uh, Buford T. Buford Justice. T. Justice pulls up and gives them a gives them a good talking to. It was a real satisfying <laughs> moment. Some bitch. <laughs> you ever seen that movie dubbed like for TV? Oh, where they take the swears out? Uh-huh. It's one of those ones like The Big Lebowski or Glengarry Glen Ross that really is a joy to see on TBS. Because mm. <laughs> it, it really, it, Big Lebowski, I think they deliberately put in, you know, they change stuff like, you know, uh, this, is what, that, that, this is what happens, you know, when you fuck someone in the ass into, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> and I think that's the Coen brothers having a little fun with us. <laughs> I, I was, uh, you, you know, our, our good friend David Reese has a television oh show now. Oh, my God. My daughter and I now argue over who has a bigger crush on him. Yeah, I know. That very show, clear. I don't like to talk about media on media, but mm-hmm. I'm just telling you, that that is a goddamn gift from heaven, that show. It's an amazing show. I want to meet he, him. He seems like amazing. a perfect delight. He is the he's the best, and he is, he appears on the show exactly as, as he is. That is how he is in normal times like it's clear it's clear from watching him that he's not putting on a thing like that's who he, he really is. wants a better shoelace yes he does like a lot <laughs> but i spent last night looking at the internet at all of the people complaining that david said goddamn 
Oh, during... that's nothing, man. You, you, I can't even believe if you've ever read Get Your War On. I can't even believe how that guy's holding back on that show. Oh, oh absolutely. He is a he is a, he is a profane motherfucker. He's but like the, the father from Christmas Story. I mean, he he paints in rich tapestries of cursing. <laughs> but as the um, as the as he was doing the paper airplane episode, and he was like, "God damn!" or he said something like that. Yeah. And I and I swear to you, there are dozens and dozens of people who are like, "I will never watch this program again." I will never, you know, my kids. I had to take my kids down into the basement and spray them with a fire hose for mm. a half an hour to wash goddamn out of their ears. That's. <sighs> I'm kind of surprised because that is one. That's one of those weird uh, like corner cases. That's one that really gets some people who could stand even some, uh, you know, poopy vagina talk. Like mm. would not do not like to hear that one. That one really mm. grinds some people's gears. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's 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 their line in the sand, right? I mean, you can say shit all day. Yeah. But you take the Lord's name in vain, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that is one of the things that it says in the book. Not it's to in do. the book, not to do. Oh, the musical when he does the musical. Did you see the party hole? Did you see the party hole episode? You know, I missed the party hole episode. I oh, was a little bit. Boy. You know, whenever somebody has a party hole, yeah, and I'm not in it, yeah, I feel a little bit like okie dokie. I'll watch your show right up to the party hole part. Yeah. No, he designed it himself. It's 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 quite amazing. Now, have you met him before? I feel like I move in his circle somewhat, but I don't think I've ever met him. You see, he's like via our friend Mr. Hodgman. You must have met him at some point. Well, not only have I met him, but he is. Um, so, on the first Jonathan Colton cruise, David and I had already met. The first time we met was upstate Massachusetts somewhere. Uh, in a uh, undisclosed location, but on mm. the first on the first Jonathan Colton cruise, David and I were both on the boat solo. I had no, I I didn't bring anybody. I was pregnant and couldn't go on the boat. <laughs> oh my god! I just, I just, uh, I just said her name. Yeah, I'll fix we, that. We've done two hundred episodes. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Anyway, so David. Uh, and I get on the boat, and he comes over, and he's like, well, I guess we're cruise wives. And I was like, cruise wives? And he's like, yeah, you got to have a cruise wife. You're even aware was- at the time how much smarter it was to not bring anybody, because I understand, <laughs> I'm talking to numerous people, that it's hard to know how much it's a good idea to not bring anybody else. Yeah, yeah. No, we were, thr- we were thrilled, and we had, the first cruise was a magical time for us, because we went to Jamaica together, we were like, we're not going on the normal tour and we went off into the town and we like decided that we were going to find a restaurant that served like a uh, barbecued goat and we found some goat and we had it and we you know we like we uh we had a, a big adventure but uh, and we went snorkeling uh, both of us kind of for the first time in a long time and we're out snorkeling on and we went not in the area that we're supposed to but in the off limits area and then i look over at one point and david has taken off his swimsuit because he wanted to snorkel like a like his natural like fish self and so he's naked snorkeling around and i was like well i guess that's what we're doing so then i was naked snorkeling and we're just like this is the best how could how can we ever go back to the real world so so the first joko cruise was a uh, was we were very close and then on subsequent Joko cruises, I started bringing my family, and David started doing a thing which amazes me to this day. Each cruise, he's brought one old friend from high school, and each cruise has been a different guy. And every one of those guys has been an amazing, weird, southern gothic, just sort of like nutcase 
Um, but they're all amazing, smart, incredible, sort of David Reesean type of people. I've never met a guy who, who knew as many nutty people as David Reese does, although I guess that makes sense. Wow. Yeah. You'd have to really think ahead, plan ahead to do that. See, I'd ha- I would still be like flustered over like trying to get the right tickets and the right luggage and stuff. But he's thinking ahead. He's bringing people along. He's bringing people from his past. And the thing is, I, for me to bring five people that I knew from high school. Could you get five people to answer the phone? Well, and the thing, what it implies is that he's still in close contact with all five of those guys. That's, and they're all still as like tight bros. That's either uh, seems dishonest or sickening. It's <clears throat> whatever it is, it's unique in my experience. Yeah. Uh, that, that whole scene, you know, it's a little bit of a North Carolina thing, maybe. Okay, yeah. You know what I mean? Like a little bit of a mint julep uh, type of uh, NASCAR thing? Sure, I, I could see you guys having a real, like, uh, like, a, like a crazy 80s montage thing, because you both, you both like, you know, your curious guys yep. who like trying out new stuff. So on the last cruise, we went again to Jamaica, and we decided we were going to find a... We were going to scour the island until we found a record store that had super old, weird reggae LPs. And we spent a very hot, long, weird, exhausting day. And we did find a guy who had some cardboard boxes of old reggae albums, which David probably overpaid for. But we did buy a bunch of LPs. Some of them had to be washed off. Hmm. Because they were covered with dirt and resin, but they, uh, but he's, you know, that's part of that's part of his record collection now. Oh man, many props. I like that guy. I like he's that good guy. guy. He's a good guy. I'll make sure that you meet each other. Yeah, yeah. He retumbled something in mine. Made me feel really good. You know, one of these shows uh, not very long ago, we talked about some famous people, and then uh, there was a, there was a little bit of like, oh, now Roderick on the line is just dropping names. What? Who said that? Now some kid on the internet. Well, now we're dropping names. Huh. Now, after oh, all these it's years, probably, yeah, talking about Pete Rose. Yeah, after all after all this time, there are still we can still surprise people. John, you know I, I you know, I don't even like to address these kinds of things, but you are you move in the corridors of power at many, many levels in many, many corridors, and I just I can't believe the restraint, restraint that you show. You know, well, and that, if you had and, not told us about that that uh, that uh, that dinner you went to with your dad. Yeah, where they were doing the can can. Yeah, that takes some name dropping, but boy, that's real memorable to me. Yeah, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't know that such a thing existed until you also talk a lot about people that nobody knows. So I, I think you balance it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, I could have we could have done a show two months ago. I could have talked about David Reese. Nobody would have known who the fuck we were talking about. Why now, are you talking about this guy I don't know about? Now he's a famous guy, uh, and he's a right, he's justifiably famous guy uh-huh. because he's one of the people. This is a rare example of somebody who got famous who should have been famous all along. Ugh. fucking people. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, ugh. I do know. I yeah. know exactly what you're saying. It's exhausting, John. Fucking people. I try to keep an open mind. Also, mm. your fever is doing better. David Reese, you should watch the party hole. Mm, the party hole one is interesting because, I mean, obviously it's like edited and stuff out of sequence, but you know, why am I talking about this? Who cares? But it's, I think it's the first one where something genuinely went tits up with mm. the operation mm-hmm. and it makes it even funnier. Mm-hmm. And it has a uh, cameo from uh, Jonathan Colton, who's someone, That's that right. we, who's someone that we know. <laughs> Our good friend Joko that we talk about uh, <clears throat> we talk about quite a bit. I think he had prop children. I think, I think there's some children he has with him, but I think they may be loners. Oh, is that right? You think they they came from the supply Jonathan closet? Jonathan likes to protect his kids from the uh, the harsh uh, eye of the public. He does, and yet, as we all know, the 
the uh, you know the whatever that little piece of gauze is between our private lives and our public lives. Yeah, that gauze is on fire, Merlin. Oh, what happened? Well, the gauze is on fire. Is all that's happening. We okay. are not going to be able to <gasps> right. separate our public and private lives for very much longer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all just an Amazon algorithm for for how for what we want to buy. Mm. My kid is going to be just another. Th- it's just going to be another face that pops up on my computer sometimes, saying, "Hey, your kid would like some food today." <laughs> it's like, "Fuck you, computer." Have you fed? Have you fed this darling child today? We think you may like Z bars. <laughs> Try Z bars. <laughs> Would you like to friend? Would you like to friend Z bars? <laughs> Hello. Would you like to increase your level of engagement with Z bars? <laughs> That's so weird to me when I go to look at. I think I, this is a thing you do. I think I don't know. I, I sometimes if somebody says something really oh or something I got to talk to you about. Sometimes <laughs> somebody will say something really bananas to me on mm-hmm. on Twitter. It doesn't happen that much, but I'll go. And so what do I do? I don't get mad. I go. I go and I uh, sometimes I just I think I, think, I always assume I don't get the reference is my first right. thing. So you <laughs> search the person you like because the people that I engage with on, on Twitter are actually like pretty nice, pretty nice people. And uh, but occasionally I'll get one from real out of left field, and yeah. then I'll go and I'll look at their thing and I'll see if there's a URL. I'll see if there's a picture that's not something from the OC or something. Uh-huh. And uh <clears throat> and uh yeah, and then I realized that they do things like follow airlines. Uh-huh. They follow they follow like celebrities. Mm-hmm. Like people who obviously like have somebody there on their behalf tooting for them. I should yeah. I shouldn't I shouldn't say this. I you know what? I really shouldn't say this. Hmm. I got <clears throat> did I tell you this? I got a uh, weird at response to a toot that's probably two or three years old. <laughs> uh-huh. So they so that's they usually were going a good back. sign. That's a good yeah, sign. They were, they were going back in the archives. And I think the only reason I don't even know if this person knows that they kinda know me, but it was in response to something that your friend Sean said. Okay. And it's a certain super fan from the SeaTac oh, area that you okay. may remember from the long winter's board days. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Uh-huh. I'm I'm with you. And uh, I read her entire timeline from the last two years. Cause, wow. Because each one, I, I woke up, I saw that, I followed through. Do you ever do that? you ever go back and just read like two years of bananas? I, I have done that, I have to say. Uh, I, I, you know, because I, lo- I love people in the same way that you do. You're a kind of gentle anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And I want to see what is making people tick. I want to see, you know, sometimes you learn a lot about the center by looking at the wings. Absolutely. It's like Heraclitus said, you can never, never dip your toe into the same crazy person twice. That's exactly right. I, and the thing is, you know, it's not a coincidence. I was just recently reading Heraclitus. Is that right? Yeah, but in but not to not to digress. I love uh, to go back into, and, and, a, and a lot of times before I follow somebody, I'll just go read their last year. Just to I wish I sure. started doing that a very long time ago. Yeah, yeah, just That's a real see, like, good idea to do. that. Hey, you had a couple of funny tweets there, and then you go back and you're like, oh, you tweet about Doritos all the time. No it's way. It's all like broken hard drives and Fox News, and you're like, what? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so you had this. You 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 went. You did a deep dive on. <sighs> Uh, a deep dive on a dingaling. <laughs> I'll tell you more. <clears throat> I should tell you more about it later. But it really brought back some memories of the old days. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, if you go back and you reread somebody's monkey balls timeline, you get a sense of how they spend, <laughs> spend their time. <laughs> yeah, and pretty much this person goes to the mall every day and takes a picture of him or herself. Yes, that is <clears throat> it. That you know what? And 
And when they are 60 and we are 60, they're yeah. going to have those pictures of themselves and we're not. It's so true. I, I take like, I take, I used to take 150 photos of my daughter a day and now I get like one a quarter. Yeah. yeah and she yeah. won't look at the camera. So it's her like in motion <laughs> turning away on a swing set or something. <laughs> well, but this is the, this is the thing in our culture. The people who do the same thing every day for a long time sometimes are plucked out by the culture and identified as like, the the true geniuses of our time, you know, mm. the the people that are like, I've been cooking frog legs every day for 25 years. And, you know, and then around their head, this graphic appears, the frog leg king. Bah! And, uh, you know, and all of a sudden he's the frog leg king and people are flying in from around the world to taste his amazing frog legs. And it's like, well, really, that we should be concerned about this guy. He's been doing <laughs> He's been doing nothing but cooking frog legs for 25 years? Like, that seems like a failure of the imagination. But no, he's the fucking frog leg king. Or he's, he's got the... a blog spot account. Yeah. He, he almost got on Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, so, you know, so you go to the mall every day, you take a picture of yourself in, the, in, the, in your reflection in the front window of a Hot Topic. 25 years from now, it seems like you are, I mean, you're the Terry Richardson of your time or whatever. You're some genius, like, art photographer that had a weird picadillo. Uh, it used to seem so much weirder, and now it's something people do all the time. I'm thinking of, I think I read this in Harper's, and then heard it on This American Life, but it was probably 10 years ago. Do you remember the story about the guy who documented everything that happened? It was an old old guy, yeah. and he oh, documented yeah, yeah. everything. He weighed the paper, the newspaper every day. He kept huh. all the stickers from the meat that he bought at the store. Does this ring a bell? Yes, it does. It was a fascinating story, and now basically that's what everybody does. That's Pinterest. Yeah. That's like, yeah. you know, my, I, had a, I had a great BM. Here it is. I went to Hot Topic. They were out of Doctor Who shirts. I got an Orange Julius. Here's a photo of me having an Orange Julius. Well, you know, and I pre-visioned this, Merlin, hmm. all the way back in the early 90s when I, said, when, when I, when I, saw, the, I saw the storm clouds on the horizon and a, and a little Mexican boy came and took a thoughtful photograph, a Polaroid of me, and handed it to me. And that is how my son the leader of the revolution is able to identify me when he comes back in time. Oh, that's so smart. I know, but leaving that aside, yeah. I remember thinking that there was going to be there was going to be some that 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 in effect the sum total of human knowledge was only going to be valuable insofar as we were able to collect it and sort it. And so we had, I had this sense in the, in the 1980s or in the early 90s that there was this, it was, it was kind of a comparative religion, uh, uh, notion that like, well, if we could, if we put all the, the religious texts throughout history next to each other and we're able to look at them in three dimensions and we just pick out all the similarities and we figure out what the differences are and how they relate to one another, then there should be some, like, some, body of knowledge be, there would be patterns that clearly emerge like hey here's a here's being nice to each other that tends to work out right and so and maybe we would have maybe we then we would have another dimension of insight into religion or what it's that how where it comes from why it's there what it means maybe there's a maybe there's a a, a tenth religion out there that is actually the the combined tenets of all religions and you know that comparative religion impulse extends to like the the idea that well we have 
a tremendous body of knowledge, all the libraries of the world, all of the, all of the uh, oral accounts, all of the, the, all the novels, and this sum total of human knowledge and experience, if there was a way to collect it and sort it, what would we know? Right. What would we know now? What would we know better? And what would we do with that information? And I remember in the early 90s thinking that this was the, in some ways, the future. It was going to be, we just needed to develop the technology to bind and sort this, you know, this kind of like dimensionless cloud of information. And we're doing it now. And what it turns out is it's digital scrapbooks of how much the newspaper weighs (laughs) and and every, every collected meat sticker from every, you know, every package of hamburger you buy. And it turns out that the collected sum of all human knowledge is just like a busy signal. It's just, it's just, a, <laughs> it's just. Oh, like, man, that's dark. Because, because all the meat stickers, there are a lot more people collecting meat stickers than there are comparing Heraclitus to, uh, to Augustine. And the very few people who are comparing Heraclitus to Augustine are so are so drowned out by the meat stickers that that ultimately there there is no I I feel like maybe maybe the uh, the high knowledge and the low knowledge do actually cancel each other out. There is no whoa. I do not prefer anymore the the um, the high knowledge because because I just am. But like the the meat sticker scrapbooks are just rising up in the room. I feel like I'm in the trash compactor in Star Wars, <laughs> and it's just it's just, it's just meat stickers, meat stickers, meat sticker logs. Yeah. and then 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 here floats by this little you know this little bottle cap, and inside the bottle cap is like, oh, have you ever noticed that uh, that uh, that Augustine, Aristotle, and Heraclitus all said this? And I'm like, huh, what? Huh? And then it just it floats by. It's eaten by a it's eaten by a compactor monster. Yeah, yeah, that's good because it seems like there's so much stuff. Not to not to harp on the the medical stuff, but it seems like at this point you should be able to like walk into a box, like kind of almost like an MRI or a TSA scanner. <laughs> it seems like we should be at the point now where you walk into a little box with your clothes on, even, and in like three seconds it tells you probably what's wrong with you and a couple things that it might be, and then you do a couple tests and you'd know. Which Why is, the uh, fuck abs- is that not the case? It really feels like that could, w- would be how it works. So you're talking here about religion, but you think about anything over the past however many centuries or millennia. Like if you had enough data over time in context with trend lines, it seems like there's so much interesting stuff that you could figure out about it. And sometimes that surfaces as like an infographic on somebody's blog or something. But you're absolutely right. It, it reminds me directly of uh, like the days after 9-11 – when they were saying, look, you know, the problem is not collecting this intelligence. We've got a lot of intelligence. We just don't have any way to analyze right. the, the huge, where there's so much noise in all of this that it's easy and to that, miss any of the little stuff that comes along. So what do we do? We've got more and more information now. But this is why, <clears throat> this is why, do you remember in the movie Russia House starring Sean Connery? No, I don't know. Have you one. seen the movie Russia House starring Sean Connery? No. The movie Russia House. With uh, Sean Connery. With Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer, ding, and Roy Scheider, um, is one of those. What would it be? Uh, early nineties meditations on the end of the Soviet Union. It's a Cold War thriller. It's a Cold War thriller. That's exactly right. Circa Hunt for Red October. 
in which uh, Sean Connery plays a reluctant alcoholic uh, book editor. I, I consider myself editor. a reluctant alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and he's a reluctant alcoholic. He's a he's an enthusiastic alcoholic, a reluctant <laughs> spy. Let's call him a reluctant spy. Anyway, not to give too much of the point away, but there is a, there is a uh, there's a scene in the film, or several scenes, I guess, where Roy Scheider, as a sort of CIA up, uh, uh, you know, high mucky muck, is running an operation from a clean room within some CIA operational headquarters, and they are, you know, they're they're monitoring the situation, and there's a guy in uh, that's kind of a Cold War trope. Who is a sort of gray, a wild-haired, gray-haired, older, clearly homosexual, but not, uh, but but everybody's pretending that he's not because he's such a genius, a kind of Betchley Park CIA, like flamboyant genius. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is like the this is this is one of these ideas that you have about the CIA that somewhere somewhere deep in there there are these guys who are kind of. who are so far off the reservation, but so genius. Right. You got your, like, uh, John Nash, uh, Glenn Gould, Misfits of Science, mutant types. Exactly. Who are super, super interesting. They keep them in the basement, though, you know, yeah. for PR reasons. Yeah. They keep them in the basement, but, but like, they, they, and they're allowed to walk around the CIA in a kimono <laughs> with, like, a, with a, like, a, Indian headdress on, <laughs> looking like because, the, looking like the boyfriend, like Chris Sarandon in uh, Dog Day Afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, be- because be- because when it's time to process the reams and reams of information, they have what amounts to an artistic insight that cuts through the cuts through the noise, mm-hmm. right? And the problem that I see with the American intelligence community, and the problem that we have in all of these like massive data dump scenarios is that we have simultaneously culturally eliminated the uh the hiawathas from the process right the cia no longer hires presumably people who are hiawathas they are only looking for the kind of like middle brow best and brightest the people that can get into Yale, the people that that score off the charts, people with good grades and good credit who aren't going to be compromised, right? And so, so they're trying to. They're like, we had all this information, we just didn't have the people to process it. And what they're missing, and what all what all of data driven culture is missing, are the the key people who do not who are able to see artistically. They're able to look at data artistically and say, you know what, you have all this data, but we can eliminate 85% of it right now because it doesn't apply. And everybody goes, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to filter it. We got to, and it's just like, nope, you know what? I can see this. I can just see. But they can just see patterns. They can just see patterns. They see through the clouds and they're like, 85% of it, it doesn't matter because, you know, it's uh, it's the Hannibal Lecter thing. It's like, is this guy... Who who's your killer? Is he going to be somebody that that uh, you know that works a straight job or whatever? You know, just like sees the pattern and eliminates eighty five percent of the data because it's because they know it's irrelevant. I love that character. And the and the and what we are not doing somehow in our culture and and in business and in in these like we have we have salt mines full of information and we're trying to. We're trying to grind it, you know, we're trying to process it through this like 
this increasing granularity and oh my god we the only place that patterns are going to exist is in the most granular at the most granular level and we're not hiring hiawathas we're not hiring people that are just like flying over the top in a kimono <laughs> who are like they you know they swoosh in and they say you know what Here's the answer. It was right here in front of you the whole time. Like, I don't think that 9-11 was that hard to figure out if you just had, I mean, and, and, and even through retrospect, it's not, it, it, you, you can imagine one person sitting at their desk and saying, you know what? I think I see a pattern emerging. And, and yet that person was just like, just shunted off into some storeroom somewhere because he didn't have the, he didn't have the clearance to talk to the guy who had the other other half of the information. Right. Oh, that's good. Super they want to keep it. You want to keep it. You know, compartmentalized. And I do not want to keep it compartmentalized. You want to be I in think, a kimono floating over that. I do, and I think the secret. I think the secret. Uh, like the secret ghost squad of all of this is some. And this is the this is the problem again with generalism. Like, how do we train? How do you train generalists? In a way, you don't. But how do you recognize them and ri- and raise them up? Right, right. If your if your culture is designed to to celebrate the frog leg king, and it's like, well, this guy's got seven PhDs in frog legs. How are you going to say that this guy over here, who never even graduated from college, has got more insight into the situation than the frog leg king? And it's like, well, you know what? The frog leg king is a fucking retard, and. <laughs> And the fact that he has seven PhDs is 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 ludicrous, and you should recognize that that me, that is a sign of his mental illness, not a sign of his greatness. But on the other hand, think about I, I feel like I heard something not too long ago on the radio about how uh, people on the autism spectrum are uh, not having an easier time getting jobs. So people are realizing that there are certain very special skills of mm-hmm. people on the spectrum that are not as common. You know, in those generalists with, right. with with the ties, and that you know, with a little bit of care and individual attention, you can actually find jobs that these folks are great at. When I worked at McDonald's, everybody who worked breakfast in the morning at McDonald's was an old lady. It was not an old man. It was not a young lady. They were all old ladies, and they had all been there for like ten years. And you know what? They showed up on time. They did their shit. Their shit was tight. And every morning, breakfast ran like a top at McDonald's because there was this culture of all old ladies working at McDonald's. And they, they all interacted well. That sounds like a really like insipid example, but you need the right person for the right job. You don't <laughs> want somebody who's going to be all logie in there. And if there, you, sometimes, you know, maybe you need somebody, maybe not quite a John Nash, but like, but you need people who are able to come in and see patterns or have a drive toward a certain kind of curiosity that's a little bit outside the spectrum. I mean, it's a whole, you know, Einstein misquote about trying to solve the same problem by doing the same thing. It mm-hmm. seems, you, you don't think they have some folks like that somewhere, like in, uh, maybe in Virginia? I, I feel like the, I feel like the bureaucratic, the cult of, the cult of bureaucracy and the, and the, the misidentification of our culture now as a meritocracy has in a way smoked all those people out right because because what you're because what we're trying to do now we're we're everywhere in america there is a there's an admissions process right everywhere there are more applications for any job than there are or i'm sorry yeah there are way more potential applicants for any job than there are positions right and so every and, and plenty and plenty of very generic 
blunt instrument metrics that allow you to put people through this rock tumbler so yeah. that only pebbles larger than this and smaller than that will fit through the screen. Right. So, for instance, I have a good friend who just went through, who just did 25 interviews for a job. And the job <clears throat> was one of your computer math jobs, mm-hmm. right? Webmaster, uh, chief uh, web marketing, uh, poobah, some kind of web maths. Mm-hmm. And, like, I know the job, you know the job. It's a job. It's, a, it's, a, it's an actual job that has things that needs to get done. A, a certain amount of imagination needs to be employed to do the job well. Um, but that imagination is like, this is, this isn't a job, uh, where you're at Betchley Park and you're trying to, you're trying to, uh, crack the Enigma code. This is a job where it's like, here's, here's what's going to happen. Pretty much we know this is the type of thing that's going to come in. These are the types of ways that we're going to solve this problem. Here are the, you know, like we're, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to invent a, a medical scanner at this business because all we're trying to do is sell phone trees to, uh, banks and hospitals. Right. But, but in the 25 interviews that my friend went to, she described innumerable examples of people coming in and sitting down and saying, let's say you're in a sinking ship. And all you have is a is a is one American nickel, and a and a uh, uncooked bag of pasta and a drinking straw. <laughs> yeah, how do you get out of the? How do you get out of this situation? And then that lean forward, big eyes, like th- this whole Google influenced version of interviewing people. Yeah, it's kind of like it's like an intellectual ropes course or something. Right, where the question is meant to, more than anything, convey to the interviewee that the interviewer is a really smart, hotshot person. Right. And over and over and over again, she's, she's trying to field these interview questions. And at a certain point, I had, I, you know, she's talking to me, and I, I advised her, like, the way to answer that question is to lean equally forward and say, this question is irrelevant to the performance of this job. And in fact, what the person that you want in this position is somebody who is going to consider all the evidence in, a, in any given situation, weigh it over time, and make the best reasoned choice. You do not want someone who is going to, off the cuff, shoot you some kind of answer that ties together the the nickel and the and the bag of pasta like you are in by asking this question you are interviewing for a different job and in fact for a job that does not exist at your company you think you are in a different world than you're in and Hmm. you know and i and i i I advised her probably uh probably that is the maybe the wrong thing to say to somebody who's interviewing you for a job (laughs) but but it's something that i felt very very passionately that in business culture now that's an example of people not recognizing where they are and thinking that they are somewhere very else and asking you know asking basically like stupid sat questions because what they wish they were doing is working for google or they wish that you know they they hope that by asking by trying to find a hiawatha everywhere all the time, and yet only choosing uh, 
uh, then ending up only choosing the people that went to Princeton anyway, because nobody can even, that, that, that person couldn't pick a good answer to that question if they tried. You know what I mean? Like they yeah. ask the question and they don't even have the, they don't even have the mental resources to know what a good answer to it is. So no, I don't feel like there are those geniuses anymore. I feel like we all want those genius. I mean, we're, we're interviewing people as though you need to be that genius just to work at attachment. And you don't need to be that genius to work at attachment. If, if, if that genius is working at attachment, it's a net loss for everybody. I got a very <clears throat> simple, probably oversimple theory. Uh, back to your favorite TV show. I think it's Kobayashi Maru. Hmm. I think, um, you know, the Kobayashi Maru scenario. I have learned it from uh, my several visits to Comic Con. But you know, you know the basic idea. Yeah, Kurt. Cut, uh, it's, Kurt a, it's a spoiler. It's a, this is a big spoiler. But basically, in your, I don't quite understand how this works because it seems like uh, they would tell other people about this. But you go into a simulator to be the captain of, of the ship, and you have a situation where you get a distress call from the ship called the Kobayashi Maru, and you have to go through. Forgive me, nerds. I, not Klingons, but. Uh, but you got basically in order to get to that stranded ship, you're going to have to go through like a DMZ that you're pretty sure will provoke the baddies. And so the question is, you know, what do, what do you decide to do? And the spoiler, of course, is that no matter what you do, the Kobayashi Maru will be destroyed. Your ship will be destroyed. Everybody, no matter what you choose to do, the Kobayashi Maru scenario dies, ends with you dying and your mm-hmm. ship being destroyed. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, so first of all, what you learn is that the Kobayashi Maru is a test of your character. It seems like it's a test of your decision-making, but it's really a test of your character to see how you react in an impossible situation. And then, of course, as you know, he eats the apple. We know that, <laughs> we know that mm-hmm. Kirk is the only one who's ever passed it because he cheated. Right. He rewrites the encryption somehow. That's right. That's the way you beat Kobayashi Maru is by cheating. And then, of course, you know, he has to go, go to a space trial and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Right, but, because it... Revealed his character. Well, I don't doubt that there are answers that that person has on a piece of paper, but I think part of it is just seeing how you react to stuff like that. Don't you think? Don't you think part of it would be like, well, here's this yeah, real but- wackadoodle situation. Show me your creativity and cool. Yeah, but this is the but this is the problem. How many of these jobs are creativity and cool needed? Right. I would say mm, maybe point zero one percent. Like you flatter yourselves, interviewers, to think that creativity and cool is a thing that you're looking for, when in fact you're looking for someone who is like thoughtful, confident. Uh, but but you know, but th- th- this is a this is another thing. Like there are so many people out there who need a few minutes to think about it before they're going to come up with the solution, right? And we have eliminated a lot of those people from contention. Because for whatever reason, we prize somebody's cool under fire in an interview. Right, or maybe they just don't present well, you know? Right. And it goes but straight, but if, goes, they, go ahead. If, they, if they went home and spent the evening thinking about it, they'd come back with an elegant solution that required, you know, in a way, neither creativity nor uh, cool. But like intelligence and a little in- work, <laughs> intelligence and work, exactly <laughs> like work and processing that does not fall into this magical like well, this is a, this is this problem of like everybody's a fucking artist now because everybody's mom told them that they were an artist all the way through grade school. And so we think that creativity is this thing that like that we need even in the business class. And the reality is of a thousand people working at a company, you need two of them to be creative 
and the rest of them need to be diligent well, or they need, need to, to be they need to be able to get along with other people which is very hard to gauge right but we're That's populating overlook skill we're populating people we're populating places with people who pass these dumb creativity tests and the reality is that most of them aren't creative so the dumb creativity test gets slightly you know gets mutated until enough people pass it right the the test the test uh mutates to fulfill the curve and so now all of a sudden we have a different definition of creativity because well you know we needed we, we didn't want 40 percent of the people working here to be creative well guess what 40 percent of the people in the world aren't creative and you're probably not going to get you're not going to cr- skim the top 40 percent off to come work at your at your software company that deals with uh phone trees <laughs> phone trees right so so if you think that 40% of the people working there are creative, you have gamed your own test to think that that you're getting creative answers out of people when people yes. are just giving you whatever fucking answer, you know, like you you're not you are not actually measuring what you think you're measuring. And the and this is the problem I think nationwide. There is no in in a in a in a country that values creativity as highly as we do, as we claim to do. There actually is very, there's maybe even less room for creative people now because creativity has been co-opted and systematized what we what we call creativity this is yeah and so here i'm going to toss out a word i'm going to use this word i think correctly for the first time it's normative because Hmm. if you think about i remember when i very i feel like i have snapshots of this from my life as feeling like somebody who was a somewhat creative person who needed a chance and a little time to explain who didn't do well in those kinds of things but i remember hearing you know you remember all the stuff about you know the psat the sat the act like it was just even in 1980 i graduated in 85 like it was so into your head how critical those are and it wasn't until a few years later that at least this is the version i've heard is that the reason those tests are are really important is that they they look at those tests they look at your grades and yeah they're going to look at stuff like you know your essay and things like that but there's a single reason that those test scores amount so much which is incredibly sensible but also incredibly depressing which is that there is of all the measurements that are out there there is one correlation that matters the correlation between people who do well on standardized college admission tests and people who finish college in less than four years that correlation is extremely high Mm-hmm. It sounds so obvious, but think about that for just a second. Right. Like, talk about fucking normative. What that right. means is that, like, wow, you know what? We just don't have the time, the inclination, or the resources to really find out who would blow the doors off of this place. And what we've got here is we need to find people who aren't going to fail spectacularly in some right. ways. That's what it means. So, like, in my, my nutty ball school, like, I had good ACT scores. I had a good essay. But mostly they were like, you know what? You're a 5%er. You're, like, one of those people who we're pretty sure is going to bomb out before the end of the first semester. But what the hell? We have a certain amount in our budget to let in crazy people who might not work out. And in the end, it did work out. Yeah. But it was, I should not have been, got, I should not have gotten into the college that I got into. Right. Because that's what that's what is there. I got it again, just quickly. I got it again when I, I think it was when I first went on unemployment in Florida in like 95 after I got fired from a job. And I remember filling out that form or when I was, I did, did a similar thing in California later, but going through and filling out those forms is so depressing because it's so 
digital. It really is like one to five stars. Write down your skill. Your skill does not match one of the things. Did you mean Microsoft Word? Okay, Microsoft Word. How many years have you done this? How good are you as that? And you don't get to explain anything about like how you learn things fast. You don't get to explain anything about like how you are sometimes good at figuring out a problem before it is a problem. There's just, I mean, I, I know that's out there somewhere. Maybe that's what those Kobayashi Maru's are for. But it's so frustrating to me that, like, the data that we're talking about ends up getting used to get a more, more and more normative bell curve of, of people who are unlikely to flame out spectacularly, but may yeah. not even be the greatest at what they're doing. And, the, and the, if you believe, if you believed in a world where the world was being run by people who knew what they were, what they were going for, you could say, like, oh, okay, this is one of, of a hundred potential ways that you could run the world. And it's, I guess, one that is equally valid. Like, let's, let's just, let's just make a bell curve. Let's, let's admit people into the most prestigious colleges that, uh, based on whether or not they're going to finish rather than whether or not they're really smart. And then let's sort of, uh, let's weight everything that happens in the culture, uh, according to this same sort of methodology. So like if you go to Princeton, then doors are going to open for you the rest of your life. And then we're, and and you're going to keep getting things done. So we're going to prize people who get things done and et cetera, et cetera. Like if, if, if we believed that there were people up on top of the, of the, uh, the space needle of our culture looking down and saying, like, here's how it, here's how it's designed. And we know that we're losing people out of both ends of this machine, mm-hmm. but you have to pick a way. And so this is the way that we pick. I would, maybe, they, maybe even thinking this is the least destructive method we know of for right. coming up with something, um, not even efficient, but something that's sustainable and doable. Yeah, because ultimately people who get things done are more valuable than people who don't get things done. So let's just say that, you know. But in fact, there really aren't people sitting up on top uh, managing the system from the top down who know what they're doing. Like every one of these systems has kind of evolved just haphazardly and it is it is an accidental kind of hive uh that has built where this is the byproduct of it. And a lot of that is, I think, because prior to now, we didn't have the technology to do it a different way, really. Or, I mean, you know, this is the technology has evolved at the same time that these systems have evolved. And so it's all, you know, it's, it's like a big anthill that just keeps getting built and falling down and built and falling down. <laughs> but, but we have now the ability to at least recognize that and and draw a correlation between the fact that, okay, on the one hand, we are increasingly producing a world of senior frogs and a world of like... A, <laughs> frog leg kings. <laughs> well, not only frog leg kings, but like everywhere you go now in America, there's a senior frogs. Is that how you envisioned America evolving? Like in 1950, when you were thinking of, of flying cars, did you really think that there would also be a senior frogs every, in every beach town? <laughs> like, was that the plan? Is this a plan? Like we are getting, our culture is getting dumber. We are getting less interesting at, at, at an exponential rate. We are privileging we are privileging dummies. We are uh, we are s- just sucking from the from the fire hose of of idiocracy, 
And it's because we have not adjusted or recalibrated our systems. And this anthill is like our anthill is, is starting to fall. And the, and the, the, and part of that has to be the responsibility of the people that we've been sending to Princeton for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, totally. You know what I mean? Like we have been, we have been choosing who goes to the next level and those people have been producing a, an increasingly garbage culture. It isn't just that we've emptied the asylums. It is that the people who have the opportunity to make good choices are making bad choices because they are cogs or because what we're calling imagination is not imagination. And we need to, I think, recalibrate and, and start saying like, you know what, maybe we need, you know, maybe the universities, and this is the thing, I don't think we can reform the universities. I think we who are outside of this culture need to start saying the universities are not where we need to look. And the, um, like, if you want an education, you can now get one on your own. We can, we can start building educational models that are outside of this whole, um, like a uh, cattle shoot that we have spent the last hundred years designing to, to find the, the smartest people. And outside of that cattle shoot, we can teach ourselves and we can start to prize and value other qualities and characteristics. Because when I was 19 years old, maybe there was a chance that I could have kicked down the door into that, world still just by sheer force of will and like good essay and interpretive dance or whatever but those days are gone Mm -hmm. there's no way a person like me could make it to could make it through that system now it's so stunning to think that you know it's just with all the the high high stakes testing that goes on throughout a public school education now and having to like more and more refine yourself through this funnel of getting more and more to be the kind of person that a college would be interested in, or for that matter, to a preschooler that a, uh, a private elementary school would want. And right. that makes you somebody, then you get a, you got to be in a feeder elementary school to get to a good middle school and so on and so forth. Until eventually, you know, your edges have been, uh, sanded off to where you'll fit into, I, I don't want to over, over say it, but it's kind of crazy to me. Like that really feels kind of real. You've got to have this number of extracurricular activities you got to have this this many things going on and that is for the privilege of paying forty thousand dollars a year to go to college that's to me where it gets a little bit crazy well and and just look at like look who our heroes are um if you if you want to look at i mean bill gates or um or mark zuckerberg and say like well, you know, these guys, they went to Harvard, they dropped out, they started these billion-dollar companies. Like, these are our heroes. And if you look at Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, these guys are not my hero. They are not our heroes. They are not heroes at all. Like, these are, these are not... Um, you know, maybe Bill Gates has become a likable guy. Uh, maybe he, through a combination of PR like devoted millions and millions of dollars of people working on him to make him uh, (laughs) appear in public as a pleasant 
person who has a good heart, who is giving his money away t- for clean water. Like Bill Gates has, has become a honorable character in the world. But Bill Gates is a fucking frog leg king. And then so is Zuckerberg. <laughs> like neither one of these guys are, are like heroic humans. They aren't even full humans. They're just guys who like had one idea and, and did it to the exclusion of all other human activity. Well, but through some combination of, I don't want to put it negatively, but like psychosis or grit was able to stick with it so long that they pushed it through to become what they wanted and then it evolved. Yeah, they pushed it through. And what is it exactly? Well, in Bill Gates' case, it was some, it was some word processing programs that ran on a fucking little game box that everybody decided we all needed to have at home because the typewriter wasn't good enough or whatever. I mean, it took, it took 15 years of personal computers being pretty much boat anchors before they were really better than a typewriter and a mimeograph machine. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we were, I mean, I'm still being asked to fax shit to people like the training wheels are still on and Zuckerberg did what he built a thing that, that does what, that we all go and waste our time on sending baby pictures back and forth. Like, okay, pioneers. Sure. Okay. They've made a thing. Fine. This is where we are now. We're in a post Facebook world, but are we happy? About yeah. it? Was that really good? Was that really uh, the best we could have come up with? Facebook was the, was the, was the next thing that human beings devised. We're or, proud or that, of that. Or, you even? know, that it, even that it set the mark. Yeah. Like it is now. There's no denying it. It did happen. It is a thing and it is an enormous thing. And it has, it has adjusted our course for the future. We will always now live in a world that is post Facebook, but I do not see it as heroic or, or even good. And Zuckerberg is not a, he is no fucking Lancelot. He's just a, he's a guy who got where he is because we decided a certain type of person was going to succeed in schools and he got to a place and now he produced a thing that is the direct result of, of how we decide who goes to college. And we're living in a, in a world where all the, all the restaurants that used to have hand carved Turkey sandwiches have been torn down and turned into senior frogs. (laughs) And I don't fucking like it. I think it's a bad world. I mean, it's, it's certainly it's bad on a on a cultural social level, but it, it seems like a lot of it is affecting the kind of food that you have available, the, the kind of food and the kind of brain food. Yes, you know, I, I like I realized the other day this is a crazy thing, but you know, Merlin, I was never bored in my life. When I was a kid, I was never bored. When I was a teenager, I was never bored. You know, you never ever ever would have heard from me. I'm bored. Because if I was left alone and I had anything, if I was left alone and I had two pebbles, I would devise a f- little thing with two pebbles that would keep me interested, not just occupied, but interested. I wasn't bored when I was a drunk. I wasn't bored at any, you know, really at any job I had. Because once I got how to do the job, then I could let my mind roam and it was just like, do a, do a rote job and let your mind be free. But lately, I have discovered, I have found myself being bored. And why? 
because I look at my phone all the fucking time. And I'm looking at my phone all the time, and it's ex- and it's exciting, and I like the internet, and I'm on the Twitter, and I'm floating around, and I'm looking at stuff, and I'm looking stuff up. But all of a sudden, in the afternoon sometimes, I'll be like, oh, God, I'm just so fucking bored. And I realize it's because I'm looking at my phone all the time, and it has the collected world knowledge on it, and yet... The interface with it and the and what I'm how I'm using it, what I'm seeking out there, and I don't think I'm any different from anybody else. Mm-hmm. It's producing this novel sensation in me, which is like the boredom of access to everything and the boredom of you know of navigating a world that was created in a in a way with no imagination. The architecture of this this phone-based internet world has a decided lack of imagination like built into the fabric of it. It's just, you know, it's what people who were told they had imagination built and everybody congratulated them. And they were like, thanks a lot. You know, did you notice that the back button takes you back and the forward button takes you forward? (laughs) And uh, did you notice also that you can scroll over here and you can look at that and you click on the ad and it goes to the next thing? And it's just like, you know what? Yeah, I did notice that. And fuck you, guy. It's not that great. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about all the president's men. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, guy. I saw it. It's not that great. (laughs)